Our guest this week is St. Agnes head coach, Chris Hopkins. Coach, thanks for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. This, is, this has been great. I love listening to all the, all the ones you had so far. I like to take feedback and inter- interactions from social media and bring these in as much as we can for those that are listening. And you mentioned you wanted to talk a little bit of PJ Mass for, you know, we talked Frozen 2 with Coach Johnson a little bit from North St. Paul. So real quick, who's the, who's the MVP of PJ Mass? It's got to be Catboy. Uh, Catboy, he's fast. Uh, he makes some dumb decisions sometimes, but he always comes through in the clutch. Uh, I, I don't know. I think speed is only so much. I, I'm a Gecko fan. I think the strength is just a deal breaker for uh, – um, for the MVP. But anyways, uh, into basketball coaching. Um, so those of you that only want to listen to toddler talk, you can tune out now. But uh, how we always start these is your coaching Wikipedia page. So coach, I know you've been uh, at a wide ranging, I uh, have wide ranging experiences. So tell us your coaching Wikipedia page, where you where you played and where you've been. Um, well, I, I started my college career. Well, first of all, I was a high school transfer. Um, so uh, there was that I transferred my senior year in high school to a, to a Catholic school. So I got paid lots of money to be able to go there to Notre Dame high school in Elmira, New York. Um, I, I then went to college at Brockport state um, division three school out there. Uh, after college, um, we, I went to SUNY Potsdam, um, which is the same state system. They just have different names for different colleges out there. I was a graduate assistant there for two years. Um, my first year we went to the lead eight. Uh, and then the second year we made it to the postseason after bringing in 14 guys after Potsdam, I went to uh, West Virginia. I worked uh, under John Beeline and then Bob Huggins as an administrative assistant, which is now considered assistant to the head coach. Um, so I got to see both those guys and obviously two drastically different styles there. Um, after I left West Virginia, I came up here to Minnesota um, to work for Nelson Whitmore at Hamlin University in St. Paul. I was there for five years. Uh, after being there, I went over to Edina as an assistant coach with Joe Berger. Uh, and was there three years, and uh, I've been at St. Agnes this past year. It was my fourth year there. So uh, West Virginia, that's obviously pretty uh, – uh, that's amazing experience for a high school coach. So what were some things that you learned at the, in the Division One game that is able to transfer to your coaching at the high school level? Um, one thing that I learned, uh, and, and it was through both coaches, and, and some of it was whether it was me not – being communicated to, um, but I, I learned that everyone on your staff and everyone that's a part of the, the program has to be communicated to, um, and that was really important. There was there were certain parts um, where I wasn't involved in certain things, even though I thought I should have been, uh, and 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 that really I really struggled with that at times because I was like, well, I want to be a part of this, and I was I wasn't I'm not the type to go push myself into those situations, um, but I, I said, well, when I'm a head coach. I'm going to make sure everybody knows everybody's on the same page that we're, we're doing the same things. Um, and, and that, that was really important uh, where, you know, I, I've been in different situations where, you know, you go, well, what about this? And your, your voice isn't heard. And I, I think it's important that everyone has a voice and, and that communication amongst your staff is just wildly important. Um, and, and if there is no communication or the, it's, it's not there, then everyone kind of struggles and everyone's on their own. They're doing their own thing rather than being on the same page. What's your best huggy story that you can share that's relatively appropriate? I mean, John Carrier comes in here throwing S-bombs the first, the first podcast, so I guess that's how we're doing things. But what's your best huggy story that you can share? Um, I, I would say uh, one time, uh, both him and Larry Harrison, who's still there as an assistant coach, um, we were driving to the Morgantown Airport, which West Virginia is, and they were taking a private plane to go out recruiting. And uh, I was in the backseat. It was kind of like an Uber deal. Um, even though I was driving his car back to the, the Coliseum where we played. And uh, 
we started talking about Michael Jordan. And now Hugs had a basically a personal sponsorship with Jordan. Uh, when he was at Cincinnati, they wore Jordan stuff, they're, they're kind of like iconic Jordan jerseys that they had. Um, and that was one of the first things he talked about when he was at West Virginia, even though it still hasn't happened as far as the guys getting Jordans and stuff. But um, we started talking about Jordan, how competitive he was, and you know, watching the last dance and it kind of brought back this into, into my head that, uh, you know, I said, well, the rumor was is that, you know, he wasn't really, Jordan wasn't really uh, retired. He was suspended by the NBA. And uh, Hugs looked at me while he was driving and looked back and goes, Hop, let me tell you this. That man, as, as he said in the last episode, he goes, I don't have a gambling problem. I have a competition problem. Is that he basically gambled on anything and everything. And he's like, he's like, he never told me it. Like, Hugs, I, I didn't tell you this, but I, that's not surprising at all that he was suspended because of that. So, I mean, yeah, I mean, I'm a, I'm a, and this, I mean, we can talk a little bit of last dance, but I think that it's, it's, it's an interesting, you know, I know some articles pop back up, maybe that were regurgitated from, you know, years ago, but the timing of it all seems fishy. I know I'm, I'm a, I'm a big ringer guy. I'm a big Bill Simmons guy. I know he's joked about that conspiracy as well. And I just think with them dropping the investigation instantly, I was actually telling my wife about it when we were watching that. She doesn't know anything about what's going on. She's a basketball player. And she's just like, wait, so who did he play for after he, after 90, after 93 and all that. And yeah, it's interesting. That's funny that hugs didn't not, deny it or you know what right. i mean so interesting um what about uh bayline um, what, what's an interesting bayline story i mean big name guys that you've worked for uh what, what's it what's a quick story from bayline um one of the one of the first things um so my little cubicle was right next to his desk um and, and one of the first things that he told me and this is after he flirted uh, or i shouldn't say he flirted he allegedly flirted with indiana um, when Calvin Sampson got the job, and I think it was another job that was that was he was in the mix for, he goes, all conversations that you hear in my office are confidential. So no matter what you hear, no matter what you see, you can't tell anybody. And so I'm like, okay, you know, kind of going through that. And then as I'm going to, and we went to the final four after, so we went, so we won the NIT uh, that year. And we were in Madison Square Garden. We flew down to the Final Four, which I think was in Atlanta. And I knew a bunch of guys. There's Dave Paulson, who is now at George Mason, um, and Todd Licklider and myself were in a, were in an elevator. And Todd Licklider, I think, is at Evansville now, but he was at Butler at the time. And Dave Paulson um, goes, "Hop, what's going on? Like, what's going on with Beeline? Is he going to Michigan?" I said, "I don't know." He's like, "I'm not going to be carrier here and, and throw up." I, he goes, BS, you know, you know what's going on. Uh, and I said, no, I really don't. And I didn't, I didn't. Beeline was really, really secretive with a lot of stuff. Um, and so that was an interesting uh, thing. And then uh, when he actually left to go to Michigan, everyone knew what was going on um, as far as like the coaching staff, as far as everybody, everybody knew it. Because obviously it was in, it was in, you know, I don't, social media wasn't super prevalent at the time, but it was all over the place. And uh and I was the only person on staff that Beeline did not talk to about him going to Michigan. Everybody else did. Now he brought uh, Jerry Dunn as assistant coach, John Mahoney, who I'm still very close with, who um, he was the director of operations and he went to be an assistant at Michigan as well. Um, and then also Tracy Hamner, who was the graduate assistant. I don't know what his position at Michigan was, but everybody else stayed or um, Mike Maker, who, 
was the head coach at Williams um, for a few years. And then uh, Matt Brown, who was the head coach at UMKC right after that, those guys did not go with him. Um, but I was literally the only person, including the other uh, administrative assistant, I was the only person that, that he did not speak to about that, um, which for me was really frustrating because he was the one that hired me. Um, and I was, the realization was, this is a business and you got to look out for yourself and you got to look out for what's going on. And I, I, even though I was his quote unquote personal assistant, it wasn't like he didn't have to talk to me about, it. I knew what was going on, but it was frustrating for me at the time because it was, you know, why isn't he talking to me? Like I have some Michigan ties as far as like my aunt graduated from there. My grandparents lived there. I would love to go to Michigan, but it didn't work out. And that's just the way it goes. So you've been at obviously West Virginia, like you mentioned, then you're at Hamlin, uh, which, which is what brought you to Minnesota. Obviously the talent's different, but from like a coaching or an X's and O's standpoint, how is the division one game different from the division three game? Um, well, I, I think the biggest thing is when you look at division one game compared to division three is the division one coaches have way more time with their guys. Um, and, and especially now, um, back then they couldn't do summer workouts, uh, except with a strength coach, but they, um, during the fall you have workouts. I think it was, you have four hours with them during the off season or eight hours with them where they could lift or they can do, um, you know, individual workouts. Um, so during this, during the, during the fall and then during the spring, they were doing workouts with their guys where at division three level, it was October 15th until the end of the season. That's all you could work with. Um, and, and that was um, some of the hardest parts as far as basketball IQ stuff um, where, you know, even for us as high school coaches now, I mean, we get to work with the kids in June and July, hopefully this June and July, but we'll see um, where, you know, it takes a while, even though we had a month of practice, there's so much stuff that you have to try to get in where at the, you know, at, at the division one level, you're breaking down part of your offense where, you know, like the small sided games where you're doing like a three on three thing or two on two, where you have managers in there, um, where they're breaking down individual stuff. So you're working on your basketball IQ during that time where it, it, it's very challenging at division three level when it comes to that. But that, that's one thing I would love to see at division three level is just give them an hour a week or two hours a week where they can work with them. It just makes, and it makes the experience so much better and it develops the relationships, which is good. Yeah. And then you can, I feel like you can keep a pulse on the guys a little bit, make sure they're, you know, keeping themselves out of trouble and they're um, and most, most kids are living if they aren't, you know, already, you know, in Minneapolis, a Hamlin, a McAllister, Augsburg, St. Thomas, those schools, most kids are probably in the 494, 694 loop anyways. And so you got kids close or, or if not, there are there, most of them are staying on campus. So it just seems like it makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Um, what, the, what is one thing, and we've talked about college here for the first 10 minutes, but what's something that high school coaches uh, can learn from the college game? Um, I think when, we, when you look at, at the college game, um, you know, I, I think when you watch a team like Syracuse, and Syracuse always seems to make a run when they get to the NCAA tournament. Um, and to me, or even like a beeline team or a Tony Bennett team, you look at those teams – and they are different. And so many times you get caught up in the, we want to play fast. We want to do this. We want to play this certain way where a lot of times just being different will be beneficial for you. Um, and, you know, that, that's the one thing that while I was at Hamlin, we played really fast there where the Mayak was relatively slow at the time. Um, so we wanted to be different and we had to, you know, we weren't going to out recruit, St. Thomas or St. John's for kids. So we had to be, get creative that way. Um, and we had to get creative with recruiting where we did a lot of out of state recruiting. Um, and, and it's the same thing. Um, 
you know, at St. Agnes that first year, you know, you're going against in the Tri-Metro, De La Salle, uh, Columbia Heights, Brooklyn Center, these teams is you've got to figure out a way to be different and for you to be successful and, and to try to win, which I think everyone wants to win. That's not the, the be all end all, but that's everyone wants to try to win. Um, but study those coaches that quote unquote, do it with less talent. Um, and, and you look at and it's watching the NCAA t- tournament game from Virginia versus Texas tech from last year. And you go, well, Virginia doesn't have the athletic prowess that Texas tech does, but Ty Jerome's really freaking good. Kyle guy's really good. You know, and key Clark is like five foot eight and like, you're going, well, how does he do it? And it's like, Tony Bennett's a ridiculous coach and he does stuff differently. And that's why they're really good. So after Hamlin, like you mentioned, you went to Edina. So you're there for three years. What was, uh, talk about your role as the assistant coach. And then what is some advice? Cause I know a lot of people listen to this podcast are assistant coaches. And so what is some advice that you have to assistant coaches? Um, <clears throat> well, fortunate enough, uh, when I, when I got there, I, I, Joe Berger, who's a, I think one of the better high school coaches in the state. Um, obviously I'm a little biased, but I think he is. And, uh, my role there was I'd see stuff on TV and then I'd go, well, why don't we put that in our offense? And so then all of a sudden we do. And we, and the guys at, at Adina had a really, really high basketball IQ and they continue to do that. Um, where we'll add a little, you know, we, we always added wrinkles almost weekly to some of the stuff that we did. Now we also had some really good players. We had Will Morton, who was a player of the year at Stonehill Division II out, out on the East Coast. Um, Walt McGrory, who's a walk-on at Wisconsin. And then uh, we had Anders Nelson, who's one of the best players in Division Three at St. Thomas. So we were able to manipulate certain things and do certain things that, you know, other teams couldn't do and just like, okay, and they picked it up. Um, and so my job there was basically to be on Joe as an assistant coach um, for subbing, uh, and, and different things during timeouts to give him different ideas. And uh, a lot of times being assistant coaches, it, it, it's, it's tough because you like, especially at the high school level where you have a JV coach who's a head coach of the JV team, you have a freshman coach who's the head coach of the freshman team or however it breaks down where they're used to being the head coach, where they, a lot of times they don't have guys who are telling them different ideas, but it's like throwing crap against the wall. And you want to throw as much crap against the wall. And then it's the head coach's job to try to figure it out and go, Oh, okay. Yeah. Maybe that's good. Or maybe that's dumb. And I, I don't know how many times is whether it was Joe or Nelson at, at Hamlin, um, where I was told I was uh, one dumb guy uh, for throwing that idea out because we tried to do it once and the other team scored. Um, but you can't take that kind of stuff personal. Um, and, and that's, that's another thing. And, and everyone's got different relationships with their, with their assistant coaches, but um, don't be afraid to throw different things at coach at the head coach. Um, and that's one thing that I had a tough time with early, um, in my career. Um, and then I got better. I think a lot of it has to do with the relationships too. Um, with the relationships that I had with the coaches where I could throw whatever and they'd be like, no, that's stupid. Or, oh, that's a great idea. And then do it. And then, and if they did it and it worked, then I'm, then it's a head coach's deal. Um, but if it, if it was a bad idea, then it, I'm an idiot, but that's just the way it goes. I'm okay with that. I'm really lucky to have a good, a really good assistant coach, uh, assistant varsity coach in uh, uh, Dylan Nauman. Uh, he does it. We, I mean, daily, he was, we're throwing fast draw links. So we're throwing things from Twitter back and forth at each other. And like you said, um, you got to find something that sticks. And I think that's good to have an assistant that, or have assistant coaches who are willing to challenge you. Cause right. As a head coach, 
I, you know, now as being head coach for four years that we get stuck sometimes if, you know, we're watching, uh, we're watching the flow of the game go back and forth, or we think that our game plan is perfect and this is going to work, but really maybe a set of eyes who isn't thinking about subbing and um, what are we going to run on offense next play and, and our work in the refs or whatever, who's sitting back behind us might have a different perspective. I think it's important as head coaches that we are open to, suggestions from assistant coaches because I've seen coaches right you can tell when you're coaching against someone who that assistant coach has no voice this is a one-man operation and teams like that I feel like struggle because they if they're wrong they're gonna be wrong for that entire game they don't have that person who can push them I do want to follow that up a little bit and just talk about how do you navigate the waters of being respectful to not being the head coach but also being willing to push um, the head coach on things like you mentioned with your job at Edina um, I, I think at, at times, uh, some of that has to do with the relationship where, um, Joe, um, at Adina is, is also an East coast guy like myself. So there were a few times where we were coming close to nose to nose with certain things, uh, or yelling and screaming at each other on the bench. And afterwards it was like no big deal. Um, where I think at times, especially, uh, being in the Midwest and being in Minnesota, sometimes feelings get hurt a little bit more when it comes to that stuff. Um, but for me, um, you know, that was how I was coached when I was younger. Um, I have no issue with being yelled at or, or but everyone, everyone's different. Um, but I, I think some of it is, as an assistant coach, you have to take responsibility and know, well, this might be a good time for me to throw this out at, at them. Or maybe we just call the timeout. Hey, let's look at this. Hey, let's look at that. And, and I know um, for my assistant coaches, I, I think I have some, some really good assistant coaches and, and they told me a personnel thing early on the year, they're like, you got to limit his minutes. You got to do this. You got to that. And I was like, no, I think, I think it's okay. I think it's okay. And then, you know, midway or a little bit more than midway for the year, I was like, why was I playing that kid? Blah, blah, blah. And they're like, well, we told you. And it's like, no, you didn't. They're like, yeah, you didn't. I was like, oh yeah, that's right. You did. <laughs> but I just ignored it. Um, but I, I think there has to be an understanding from coming from the head coach that says, you have to give me stuff. And if you don't give me stuff, then you're not doing your job. And I have to find someone or a group of people that are willing to do that. Um, and, and whether that's, you know, we're, you know, like you said, the fast raw stuff or stuff on Twitter, um, we're going back and forth with a bunch of different stuff um, pretty consistently throughout, whether it's during the year or in the off season, um, you know, and some of it is, is what's going to stick. And, you know, like I tell some of my, like the JV and freshman coach, it's like you guys also as, you're talking about stuff and it's like Damien talked about in the last one where you can experiment. And then as, as we're building up and doing what we need to do, then maybe I'll, I'll look at it uh, if it works out really well. Um, and, and I want those guys to get creative and, and see what sticks. And it's, and it's the same thing for our, for our junior high levels too, is I want, I, there's certainly a, a set base of stuff that we want to get done, but there's also a certain creativity that those kids need to have because if I'm throwing a diamond in one or a triangle in two, or we're doing something that we've never practiced that we have to do during a game, then our kids have to be able to, to, to adjust. Yeah. I think the uh, part of an assistant coach, you just have to provide value to the head coach. Like you mentioned, one thing that I do, and I don't know if this is good or not, is we have a ninth grade coach, uh, a JV coach, varsity assistant varsity, and then we have a B squad as well. So the, depending on the schedule, the JV or the, it's more JVB, our JV or our varsity assistant will take that. That's kind of rotating depending on if it's a 415, 545 or a 545, 545. But what I've done is I have 
you know, if we make a big, like this isn't like a substitution pattern, but if we're talking about moving the kid up, changing starting rotations, stuff like that, I do a point system with, I get two points for a vote and the other guys each get one and it's a three to two, you know, so if the assistant coaches see like, we need to play this guy more and all three of them agree on it, then that takes over, you know, uh, that's, that's the decision. And I have to respect that. And there's been times where maybe I haven't fully agreed with it, but I'll tell you what, those assistants, when they're, when they're bonded together on something and they see the game from a seat and they're sitting and they're from a different lens, they're usually spot on on that. So something that that's worked for me, uh, again, we don't usually, you know, it's usually early in the year and we're talking about roster formation more than anything, but I think it's helped me not, you know, over flex my power, but also give them a voice. So that's something that's worked for me. Um, what about, uh, I know you've, I know we talked, you know, through messages beforehand that you had quite the process before you came to St. Magnus looking for head coaching jobs. So one more thing as an assistant coach, obviously you know, you're Eddie Dida and you're also looking for head coaching jobs, but you also have summer obligations. You know, you're looking at maybe if it's Ed Post at St. Cloud State or Indeed or whatever, if it's NBCA website, you're looking for opening. So how do you balance as an assistant coach looking for jobs versus, and also still providing value and helping the program that you're currently in? Well, I think first and foremost is you have a job to do uh, as an assistant coach to do what you're supposed to do, you know, for the program that you're, that you're with right then. And, and obviously at a certain point you have to look at things selfishly um, and, you know, try to do what's best for your family um, or for yourself or however it works for each situation. Um, but I, I think the communication factor has to be there. I know with Joe, um, when I was at Adina and I don't remember how many jobs I applied for or interviewed for when I was there. Um, but it was, all right, I'm going after this job. Can I use you as a reference? He's like, what else, what do you need? Do you mean make a phone call? Do you need me to do this? Do you need me to do that? Um, and some of our job as a head coach is, is to help these guys or, or, or women, whoever's in the, in those positions. And as an assistant, you have to make sure that you're on board with what you're doing. I, I mean, I had an interview, um, one time during camp, we had, we had summer camp and I left camp and he's like, yo, go, go. And I, and I had an interview and I thought I did really well. And he's like, you got to feel pretty confident about that. And I was like, I think so. I think it was good. And then I didn't get the job. <laughs> and, uh, but it, it's just the way it goes. I think every head coach, um, you know, doesn't want to lose assistance. I think selfishly from that point, but, but it's also to the point where, you know, if someone wants to run their own program, then and that makes sense to, for, for them to be able to do that. But I also think it's a head coach's job to kind of, to know some of those things as far as, well, what about the, what's, what's with this job? What's with that job? Um, you know, what's a, some positives and negatives that you can give feedback as well, just in case they, they need that. Yeah, that's good stuff. And I have a, I, a completely different situation than you. I was a JV coach for one year. Our coach stepped down to pursue administrative jobs and I became the head coach. So I didn't really go through the interview process. So what are some things that, I mean, I interviewed at one school and it's the only basketball coaching interview I've ever had. And so what are some things that you learned or advice for people that are trying to crack that, make that last step? Maybe they're a varsity assistant and they've been a finalist for a job, but they just can't get that head coaching job. So what would be some advice you would have for someone who's in the middle of that interview process right now? I think one of the biggest things is, is to connect, is to connect with people um, and connect with as many people as you can. Um, I, I know, um, especially not being from Minnesota, um, I had a tough time connecting with other coaches. And so people didn't know who I, who, who I was. Um, so I interviewed and they're like, well, this guy was a college coach. He was at West Virginia. He worked for Beeline. That's great. Um, but they didn't know who I was. They just looked at the resume and say, well, let's bring this guy in for, for an interview. Um, and, and 
you know, to, to be perfectly frank right now, I, I don't talk to a lot of different people um, in the, in the coaching scenario. I probably interact with more on Twitter um, than actually talk to them. Cause I, it just, you know, with family stuff and all that different stuff, it's just not reasonable for me. Um, but connect with as many people as you can um, have an idea of have an understanding. And I think Damien did a really good job uh, last week or earlier in the week, as, as far as have a plan and have it written down. And, you know, in every situation is different. I, I know like at, at St. Agnes, I had a connection through coaching in Minnesota, which I, which I didn't have anywhere else. Um, and that connection was Jameson Rustoven, who was uh, a high school coach and college coach here locally. I worked with him at Hamlin and he was a St. Agnes grad. Um, and that was, that helped me get in um, at St. Agnes and, and, and at other places, I just didn't have an in. Um, and I, I honestly probably thought I was going to get at least three or four other head coaching positions where I thought I was a lock, um, especially with some of the, you know, different people, um, the way that it was going as far as the interview process goes. Um, but it didn't work out. And, and I think I found a great fit with St. Agnes. But it, it's, it's, it's a challenge. And it can be really frustrating. Um, and you see some guys, because of their playing background or because of where they're from, um, they get jobs. And, and you know, and I always – go back to like what John Beeline was. John Beeline was never an assistant coach. Um, and, and he always went from, I think he was a JV head coach, a JV coach and the head coach wanted nothing to do with him. Then he went to Erie Community College, was the head coach there, then went to Nazareth, then went to Lemoyne, then went to Canisius, then went to Richmond, you know, so on and so forth as he went through all those places. And you've got to find what you are as a coach and you have to find what's going to work. And sometimes at different places, it's not going to work the same, you know, and that's the part that's, that's the challenge is if you're going to interview, know the school, know the clientele, do your research. And if you do that, then you can be in a, in a good, in a relatively decent situation to, to know what's going on. But if, if you don't, you just go in, well, I'm a good coach and, and nobody knows who you are. What, what does that do for you? So that, that's, I think that's the biggest thing. Well, that's good stuff. I think for those that are listening, I think that's some really good notes to write down. I think a big thing that I took that I heard uh, is you talking about just get to know the school and, and make that connection. If that's maybe reaching out to the administrator before the interview or sending a follow-up email or referencing like that you've actually looked on their school or that their athletics page within your interview. I think like you show, like you said, shows that they've, you know, did that research and that they're invested and they, they want to connect with that job. Now let's talk about your team more specifically. Uh, we've done a lot of background stuff and really good stuff on the assistant coach and the interview process. That's great. And I think that might be as relevant of information to those people that are listening as anything we've talked about in the first 11 podcasts that I've done, but what are some strategies that you use to build relationships with your kids? Um, I think the, the, the biggest thing is, is to, you know, being in the school and seeing them every day and talking to them and, and, and asking kids how they're, well, number one, I always like, how's your family? And then like for our kids at St. Agnes, we have kids spread out all over the, the Metro area. Um, I asked, well, where do you guys live? How many people are in your family? How many, like, you know, all these different things to try to ch try to get to know these kids. And I do this as a teacher as well um, because I, I want to know. And it's important that these kids know that I care. Um, and whether it's, it's different situations. And we, and we had an unfortunate situation this, this past year. Um, one of our leading scorers um, who uh, was shot and killed um, during the winter, during the middle of our season. And, you know, we were, as a team, we went to 
he had a service at, at St. Agnes and, and we went there and, and the kids got to see me as a human. Um, I think at times um, as coaches and as teachers, we are robots because we like, we, we don't show the emotion that we need to, at, or don't show the emotion at times. And I mean, heck, I mean, I was a, I was a wreck for a while as, as a kid that was really close to, to me. And, um, and, and I showed him a care. And, and frankly, to, to pretty much all of our kids, you know, we used to do, bef- uh, after we get done with practice, I'd shake everybody's hand. Um, and and, and uh, towards the end of the year, it was, I gave everybody a hug. And I'd tell them I love them. And, and, I, and I think that changed my perspective a lot as a coach because it was, this was, this was, this is one of our guys. This is one of our kids. And, and I know a lot of teachers came up to me because they knew how close uh, Marcus and I were. And uh, that, that was really tough. Um, but it, it's, it, it's showing that you care and, and, and being okay with having sit down conversations and having tough conversations with kids about whatever it is. Um, and, and that was, that, that was one thing is our leading score this past year, Jake Bresney, his sophomore year, um, he was not a huge fan of me. And, and he knew that. And I, and I figured that out. Um, and, and, you know, I was just texting with him back and forth the, the other day. And it's like, love you, Jake. Um, if you need anything, let me know. And he's like, thanks coach. I appreciate it. You know, and it just, it, I, I think it, showing you care is just, a, is just a big thing and, and making sure you know each kid. Um, cause every kid that we have is everything's a little bit different and I'm sure every coach deals with it. Every, everybody's a little bit different and you have to approach how you deal with each kid because sometimes, um, you know, what they're going, what they're dealing with at home is different. Um, what their family situation is different, what their sibling situation is different. Um, and, and everyone's got different struggles and different things. And, um, we have to be aware of that as coaches and, and make sure that we're doing our best to, to make sure they're, that they're okay wide variety of background that you've had as your coaching or experiences that you've had in your coaching career. Inevitably speaking, no matter what level you're at, division one, division three, high school, things are going to either work or they're not going to work offensively. So how, what are some ways or what are some strategies that you use or things that you do to make in, in-game adjustments or even in-season adjustments on the offensive end? Um, on the offensive end, I, I think the, the biggest thing is <clears throat> we try to look at our stats and look at what we're doing. And, and, this year, we did a lot of basically looking at our field goal percentage, our free throw percentage, our three-point percentage, and said, guys, what are we seeing here? And, you know, I, I, I like to show it, and not necessarily with names, depending on every, you know, somebody struggling for the free throw line or whatever it is, and I think a lot of times they know who it is, but you go, well, what do, what do we have to do? And they go, well, we have to score more. It's like, yeah, but maybe we should defend more, um, you know, where, where – our, our free, this, this year in particular, our field goal percentage, we didn't, we did not shoot. We were not a good shooting team. And, uh, but we could defend. And for us to win games, we had to defend a lot. So um, when we talk about offensive adjustments, it's figuring out ways for us to get easy baskets. And, you know, we talked about this before where sometimes your team's changes and, you know, against certain teams this year, we just tried to create easy baskets by pressing, by, by doing different things where, um, we could run sets. We could run, you know, I, I, I really like doing stuff out of bounds plays as far as getting easy points. Um, but ultimately our guys have to be able to make plays and they have to be able to finish. And to make those adjustments is how can I get those guys into positions for them to be successful? And that's for some guys that's getting a layup, some guys that's getting a wide open three. Um, and a lot of times it comes down to getting in the paint. 
And if you can get in the paint consistently, you probably can be a pretty good offensive team. And it, it doesn't matter how many times you miss threes, uh, it's, it's free throws or whatever it is, you got to get in the paint. And adjustments each year for us ha- have been interesting because that, that first year um, we really defended hard. Um, and when we defended, we had guys that were just bulldogs basically getting to the rim. We couldn't shoot the ball at all, but we had bulldogs getting to the rim. So it's like, all right, well, let's, we ran a dribble drives kind of, we've, we've always run a dribble drive stuff, but um, it's like, okay, let's get downhill. That, that second and third catch that you get, let's let's get downhill and get to the rim. Um, and, and then the past couple of years, it's been, well, what can we do to get our shooters open looks? And sometimes it was when we played a zone, we had a couple sets. Um, and, you know, I, I think it depends on a team to team basis, and, but, but, but it's, it comes down to what can you do to get easy shots? And those easy shots obviously are free throws and, and then layups. And if you're shooting under 40% on layups or, on, you know, under 50% from the free throw line, then that's not always the best strategy, but you got to score. And, and, you know, if you're shooting that percentage there, you're probably not shooting a high percentage from three. So hopefully you can figure kind of, kind of figure that stuff out and, and, and move from there. But, the adjustments on, in a game and adjustments throughout a season, it, it kind of depends on the roster. And sometimes you've got a bunch of bulldogs. Sometimes you guys got that want to jack threes. And so what can you do is, you know, the analytics stuff of most huddle or we use vid swap where they have stuff where it's a shot chart and they have different areas where guys are really good at. Well, where can we get those guys shots where they're really good at? And I think that's important. The dribble drive offense is your, your cores, your uh, main offense philosophy. What are some ways in practice that you're able to rep that or make a game like to get guys, uh, or what are some of your teaching points? Just kind of get into the intricacies of your dribble drive. Well, um, <clears throat> sometimes, and, and we're, we're not real big. I hear Damien talking last week or about, well, we don't have guys that are 6'3", six, 6'4". Six, I was like, well, I've struggled to have guys that are 6'1". So um, we're, we're, we're doing different stuff. Um, sometimes we go five out, sometimes we go – uh, four out, one in, um, and especially that first year, uh, we had we had a, a bigger kid inside, and he was really, really good at just catching and scoring around the rim. Um, so he didn't make moves. It was simple. There was a dump down pass. He was ready to catch, and he'd go score. Um, we have uh, one thing that we do and we're trying to get better at is, and I really like this, is when we go baseline, there's always a crackback. And that crackback is the pass that where the guy replaced you. So if you drive baseline, there's always going to be two guys in the corners, one guy opposite, one guy on the other side, or on that same side you came from. That crackback pass is almost always open. That's one thing that we emphasize a lot, and we do a lot of three-on-three that way. Um, so like, like a lot of guys talk about, like the short-sided games um, where you're breaking down your offense and those little um, – little snippets of what happens during a game. So um, we do a lot of three and three and four and four stuff with that. Um, and, and sometimes depending on the player, you know, I think in the, we kind of, the dribble drive is, you know, you're supposed to move on penetration where I think that's hard for a lot of high school kids um, where if you're moving on penetration, well, a guy, you were open where you're supposed to be and now you're supposed to move. And that, that was a challenge. That's always been a challenge where, um, but you know, to be able to make, those passes, whether it's baseline or through the middle, it is something that we worked on a ton where don't have, you don't have to feel the need to force after you get in the paint to force a shot or to force a pass where you have five seconds or three seconds of being in the paint. 
um, to be able to make a play. Um, and that's something we work, we do a lot of stuff with pivoting um, to be able to find guys that are open in, in the middle. So uh, it's not exactly the Vance Wahlberg, uh, you know, run and gun or what Cal Perry ran at Memphis, but we, we try to, you know, try to simple it up a little bit. But I, I think the biggest thing is that, that guy in the baseline, we do a lot of stuff in the short corner rather than post, post up. Um, and that, that guy in the short corner, he's got to be ready. Um, and, and that got us a lot of easy baskets and it, and it has got us a lot of easy baskets over the years. I've talked about nervous cutting on a few different podcasts and I should trademark that. Cause I think it, I, I first think it, it, it matches really well because unless you are really, really, really talented with kids who just know the game, the high school of, I feel like, like you mentioned, it's going to cause more issues. Kids are going to cut into it. They're going to move there and cut into a guy's attack lane. Right. So maybe you get a couple layups a game off of cuts off of penetration, but I think over the course of 36 minutes, it's going to take away more scoring opportunities when guys are overcutting off of penetration. Uh, than if they're just spacing out. And so I want to talk a little bit more about that uh, guy in the dunker spot or in that short corner spot. Um, what, are, what are some finishing drills or what are some spacing drills or what are some points of emphasis for him? Because that's kind of how the game is changing. We, we see very few back-to-the-basket post-up guys in 2020, but we see a lot of guys in that dunker spot. So some, what are some ways that you develop that player uh, and some uh, constraints that you have on their role within your offense? Um. As far as constraints are concerned, um, we, we change over year to year. Usually we end up having them move initially, and then by the end of the year we have them stay still. Um, and that kind of opens up because sometimes the guys, the perimeter players don't know where to go because the post is there and they don't want to drive to the post. So sometimes we just say, you just stay there, um, makes it a little bit easier. Um, as far as one of, the, one of the drills that we do consistently, we like to do that um, you know, with our offense and also versus zones. So we call them stepovers. And I saw the beeline do this uh, actually when I was working camp there, not when I was uh, working there yet, um, where you have your back to the baseline and you catch the ball and you step, I say you step over, you bring your arms like this and you step your whole body over. So then your, then your chest is up to the baseline. You power up with a dribble and then go score. So you're basically using your butt to get the defender out of the way and back them up. And then you can go to the same side or the reverse side um, to be able to score. And we, and we do that. Um, our guys work on that in both short corners. And we also work at it from the high post, especially versus a zone. And our guards do that too. Um, and it's a really awkward footwork be, because most people don't do it. Um, and usually they can do it on one side and not the other, but what it does, it seals off that defender. And, and we did that when I was at Potsdam with our bigs and we were in the NCAA tournament and the team was playing zone. And one of our guys goes, Hey hop, that works. And I was like, yeah, you finally did it after 28 games. That's, that's, yeah, I know it works, you know? And, and uh, so it, it's, uh, it's one of those moves that I don't think is taught very much, but I, I, I really like it. It's, a, it's definitely emphasis that we have not only with our bigs, but also with our guards. I think that's great with this. I get, like I said, the game is changing so much and I've seen, I don't know, there's seems like there's the core of 20 or 30 people, coaches that I get into, maybe it's just the algorithm on Twitter that I see, but it was from someone, maybe it's from you or from Damien or someone carrier, uh, just talking about do we really even teach post-ups anymore and how do we teach that? I think the game has evolved so much that if you have a true five, unless it's like your offensive lineman who just is going to post up on the block and hammer people, you're either a ball screen guy and or you're in the dunker spot just because the game has evolved. So those are good drills. I like that. I wrote that down. That's definitely something we're going to work with and we're not going to be as traditional with our five for the next couple of years, but uh, it's definitely something that I think I want to add into my arsenal. So thanks for sharing that real quick here because I know you got to go. Uh, I want to give you some time. You mentioned your first year defensively, you guys were, were good on the defense end. So just what is your defensive philosophy and then what are one or two nuggets that you can share uh, with our audience? Um, 
over the past several years, we've been uh, very pack line um, as far as defense is concerned. I, I think that'll change. I, I think I think as coaches, our job is to change um, as far as what our personnel is. And um, we've been we've been pack line, and, and that year we were long, and, and so we were athletic and we were pretty tough. So um, the biggest thing is with that with that pack line and is to make sure that we're in those gaps. And we also did a thing when I was when I was in, at Hamlin and then we did it at Dinah and we don't do it anymore at, at, at St. Agnes because the level of play is not nearly as high as, it, as those two spots. Um, but we used to not help from the corner, the corner guy. Um, so we'd swipe and get back. So we'd literally hand swipe kind of fake foot fake with our foot swipe and then get back to that corner three. And now, I mean, I, don't, I, I still think that we play against some really good teams, but that corner three against an Eden Prairie or against a St. Thomas or St. John's is a little bit different than we're playing against uh, Concordia. I mean, obviously Concordia still made it the section final this year. It's still pretty darn good, but it's a little bit different. Um, um, and, and this year we, we just helped rather than swipe and get back. Um, one thing that we do as far as practice is concerned, um, and this is from my dad. My dad was a high school coach for a long time um, where kids weren't sprinting to the spots they needed to um, in, in our, in our shell. And, and my dad said, well, just make them do pushups. And I was like, that's not going to work. And, uh, and he's like, and you can't do a number like five because that's not going to teach them anything. And so when I was at Hamlin, we weren't sprinting the spots and, or we weren't closing out with our hands high and, and it was blow the whistle, make them do 25 pushups or 20 pushups. And I, and I always tell, and I say this every year, I was like, we're either going to be really good defensively or we're going to be really strong. That's up to you. And, and so they, our, our kids kind of get that uh, pretty good um, as, as the season progresses. Um, and, and that first year I was probably a little bit harder on the guys because I wanted to, to really nitpick as far as this is how we're going to play. Um, and I've gotten a little bit more lenient with it, um, which I don't think is a, is a great thing at times. Um, but that's one of the biggest emphasis that we have is, you sprint to spots. And, and, and I know coaches talk about sliding to spots and getting to spots. I, I, I can't stand when people say slide. It's, it's a sprint. And, and sliding doesn't work. It's too slow. If you want to slide, then you're going to be too slow. Um, and, and so when we sprint, we're sprinting the spots and seeing both and heads on a swivel. And, and I think as we early in the season, and we have a lot of multi-sport athletes who play football um, or, or play soccer – is they're either eyeing the ball or eyeing their man consistently. So then, uh, then it's a then it's sometimes it's push-ups because of that. So um, push-ups teach our lot our kids a lot um, when it comes to that kind of stuff. And, and I you know I, I know the the conditioning part of it. We don't do a lot of conditioning, and so our, our hope is that during our defensive stuff that our conditioning is you're sprinting and you know staying in defensive stance and sprinting for 30, 35 seconds multiple times. It's going to get you in great shape. And that's the, you mentioned the, the clock right there. I think for me, that's one of the main reasons why I want, we play fast. Shot clock isn't an issue for me offensively for our teams, but it's just like having that set time that you say, Hey, go defend for 35 seconds and not like, Hey, this team might run a minute and a half off the clock. Um, I do like that. You mentioned the, the sprinting and not sliding. I think that when as defenders, you're really only sliding for one step, maybe two, either you've now stopped him or stopped her, whatever, or whoever you're coaching. Um, or now you're sprinting and getting back and trying to cut them off uh, to recover after you've gotten beat. But no one guards the ball in 2020 and shuffles 25 times into a defensive stance up and down the court. And so, and that's a really good coaching, coaching point. And I hope people heard that and stuck out for the, 
40 minutes of this, because that is important. I think that we overteach sliding too much. And um, that's great that you brought that up. Last question, as is a trademark of the podcast, what is advice you have for a first-year head coach? Um, the, the biggest thing for first-year head coaches is, is make sure that, that you are you. Um, and surround yourself with assistant coaches that will challenge you. Um, I know as a, as a first-year head coach, um, I had a tough time with trying to handle everything. And sometimes your assistant coaches can help out with that. Um, and, and I know, you know, they, they, there are a lot of times you say you have the old guy on staff um, where they have, they have a lot of knowledge. Um, and I, I've never had that uh, at St. Agnes, but I've also had my dad to bounce ideas off who was a high school coach for a long time where, hey, dad, what do you think of this? Or he watches our game film and says, hey, what about that? Um, where – that, that extra knowledge um, to be able to have that, especially as an experienced coach, is, is, is invaluable. And, and you, you just you, – you be able to bounce off, bounce off ideas to them and, and for them to understand, oh, okay, that makes sense, or then maybe a little bit different perspective because they've been through the rigors of many seasons. I, I, that's, that's really important. Awesome. Coach, thank you for your insight. Uh, love the, love the stories and you have really good coaching points. I know I got my notes, my whole sheets written down here with notes. So I appreciate you coming on. I appreciate you interacting, interacting with us, uh, through social media on the podcast and pushing questions out to other guests and, uh, best of luck, stay safe, uh, and enjoy the, enjoy this time that you have being forced to stay at home. (laughs) Thanks, Brett. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me.